everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Lights Out Podcast, episode 25. As always, I'm your host, Josh, and I've got my producer and brother, Joel, in the studio with me, as always. And today, we are diving back into the Conjuring universe because we're going to be covering probably one of my most favorite haunting stories of all time, and that is the Perrin family haunting. But before we get into the story, I wanted to say this is the very first episode of the national holiday here at the Lights Out podcast, Halloween. We are very excited for this month. We've got a lot of very, I mean, let's be real. It's Halloween every day on Lights Out Podcast. I mean, it it was hard for me to sit here and think, all right, what am I going to do for what am I going to cover for Halloween this year? And I realized I was like, God, all the things that I would normally cover on this show would would fit for October. But with that being said, I do have some special topics that I think you guys are going to really enjoy. And we're going to start it off right with a paranormal case. So I'm very excited about that. And also, Today was supposed to be a day where we had a completely new setup here at Lights Out, but unfortunately, the sign that I ordered came broken thanks to UPS, and now I have to wait another month for a new sign to come, which is very sad because I was very excited to have you guys take a look at our new setup because we're going to totally change things around and we're going to get Joel more involved. We got a lot of big things coming here on Lights Out. So, yeah, dude, I was so bummed out when I saw the sign. Yeah. Like, it had a full chip out on the whole side of it. Like, someone kicked it or something. Yeah, it literally looked like somebody it, kicked the hole. Yeah, dude. Like, so, so excited to have that hanging up today. But, you know, unfortunately, we're going to have to wait it out a little bit longer. I know. I know. It's such a bummer because, like, of course, I wanted to have like the sweet setup for Lights Out for October. And now we're not. We're going to just be in the same old, same old spots until the new sign comes but it'll be all right i think and hey at least we got the candles right yeah we got the candles we got the incense we're fully ready for this very crazy paranormal case there's a lot of activity that happens in this one and honestly this is probably one of the cases that i believe the most that ed and lorraine warren investigated it's very famous and i think you guys are gonna like this one i also wanted to remind you guys that we have got merch we finally got our own merch i'm wearing the metal tee a lights out metal tee joel's rocking the lop yeah cab. i got the lop dad cab going on over here super comfy too absolutely loving the merch yeah it's great quality stuff really warm uh really soft the hoodies are all dope because they are double printed double-sided printed there's the skull on the back and then you've got the skull logo on the front there's a bunch of different shit on there and uh, yeah we'll link that for you guys below because yeah once these sell out i'm not gonna restock these designs i might keep the you know the cover art logo but other than that i'm gonna completely start fresh with the whole new drop so that way every drop is got stuff in there that's limited time you're only gonna get it once and that's it and it'll be gone forever so if you want something check out milehiremerch.com and you'll find all of your lights out merch there also this episode is brought to you by bartleby which I'll tell you about more. If you're in school, you're going to want to know about Bartleby. So stay tuned for that. But let's fucking get into this Ed and Lorraine Warren case, because this is an absolutely insane case that happened to the Perrin family uh, for a long time, too. So in the early 1970s, Roger and Carolyn Perrin decided to move with their five daughters to the countryside, escape the city, get out, you know, where it's quiet and peaceful. It's one of my favorite things too, is to go to the countryside. Me and Joel were actually raised for the most part in 
the middle of nowhere, seemingly uh, we were 30 minutes outside of the city. So we were very used to not having a lot of noise around us and, you know, seeing the stars at night. It was actually really nice. Yeah, dude, I totally love the country. I mean, it was just so nice how quiet it was. And, you know, I spent the majority of my when I was in high school out there and everything. So I graduated with a class of 69 people, 69. believe it or not. Nine. Yeah, dude. And I'm sure not many people know this, but I do play the banjo. So, you know, being out there in the country, I was repping that hard. If, if you haven't seen my banjo stuff, check out my, uh, you know, YouTube channel and my Instagram and stuff links in the description, but <laughs> hell yeah, dude. Yeah, dude, it's good. And you've got a, uh, this is just a side note, but he's got a video uh, from his talent show in high school where he played the banjo and it's got like 16 million views on YouTube. I know dude it's, it's absolutely crazy. crazy yeah it's actually a really funny video too so we'll link that for you guys too to check out but yeah I mean coming from the country uh Joel and I are kind of country boys at heart I feel like you know we are not really we like our space around us we don't like to feel confined we like to have you know some breathing room smell a little bit of fresh air a little less pollution but yeah, so the countryside is just a great place to escape from, especially if you've been in the big cities for a very long time. And that's exactly what the parent family did is, you know, plus the economy during this time wasn't so great. Uh, it was very expensive to live in the city. So they were like, you know what, let's move the family out of town and let's live a simpler life where things are less expensive and we can still have, you know, a good size house because they had a big family. So Carolyn Perrin was a pretty good looking woman. And her and her husband, Roger, led a very happy life together. Their girls were obviously very close. You know, they were close in age. And so they grew up being best friends. So it wasn't a big deal to move out to the country because, yeah, they would have each other. And that was the same for me and Joel's. We had each other. We didn't have a lot of neighbors around us to hang out with. But, you know, you just uh, you make it work. And that's exactly what they did. And for eight months, they searched for the perfect house to raise their family in and start their new life in the country, which is so ironic considering which house they choose. In 1971, Roger and Carolyn Perrin bought a 14-room farmhouse that had 10 bedrooms in Harrisville, Rhode Island. And Harrisville is actually a village in the town of Burlville in Providence County. So New England area, is the way they have everything laid out is much different than it is out west. But it's kind of cool. They have like villages still and, you know, there's a lot of little towns everywhere and they all kind of unique uh, to th their particular town. And so Harrisville is a very, very chill, laid back area to, you know, raise your family. The farmhouse that they bought was actually on 200 acres of property, which is a ton of land, absolute ton of land with a barn to the left of the main house and a creek that actually ran through the estate. So this was like to them, they're like, this is perfect. And so they used all of their savings that they had built up in order to buy it. And in January of 1971, during an icy snowstorm, they moved into their new home. Andrea Perrin was 12 years old and was their oldest daughter, followed by Nancy, Christine, Cindy, and April. Most of the Perrin children are still alive today. And a lot of them remember back to this time when their parents were looking for this house and just how happy they were to find this farmhouse. It was the perfect space for them. And obviously there's plenty of room for everybody. But unfortunately, this perfect farmhouse that they found had a very rich and very dark history. So they spent a lot of time looking for a home, but yet 
they I, I wonder, and this is a point of contention, I believe, is that whether or not the Perrin family actually knew about the dark history that this farmhouse had prior to moving in. And from what I have found, it sounds like they did not know about this history. But some people say otherwise. Originally, when the land was purchased, it wasn't until 1736 that an actual farmhouse was built on the land. And this is the farmhouse that the Perrin family ends up buying. But a house built in 1736, I mean, I don't know how many houses out there you can even still buy now that are still around from 1700s. Like that is so fucking old. And who would want to move into a house that old? Like I know a house that old makes me think that shit's probably falling apart. You know, you're stepping on the wooden floors and falling through or some type of shit. Like, yeah, just structurally, like how sound is this house going to be? Yeah. And you know how many creaks and shit that's going to have in there? You know, it's going to be creepy. And I mean, to me, I feel like the family probably moved in. I know it wasn't mentioned, but maybe due to the price of the property, the price of the house, because when you think about it, a 12 bedroom home today is like millions of dollars, you know, 10 bedroom home is crazy. Yeah. And during the 1970s, I mean, obviously uh, money was a lot different than as far as what it was valued at. So it, it, I, I don't know exactly how much they bought the home for, but I know it was definitely affordable for the family at this particular time because it was getting very expensive to live in the city and also to buy a home in the city obviously was just for their family would be way too expensive. So they definitely dropped some coin on this house, but it was definitely affordable for them because, and it provided all that room, all that acreage. So to them, the house was a bargain. It was a good deal. So they were going to take the deal despite the fact that the home is from the 1700s. And, you know, I'm sure some work had been done to it. I mean, you can only imagine there's probably things that were replaced and maybe renovated. I mean, I don't know for sure if that happened, but again, still the meat of the house is from 1736. Originally the house was called the Dexter Richardson house after the first family who lived there. And eventually it was taken over by another family and renamed to the old Arnold estate. And this family, the Arnold family stayed in it for eight generations. So if you think about that for a moment, you have a lot of people coming through this house. And if you look at this from kind of a spiritual perspective, the amount of souls that inhabited this place, I mean, you're talking dozens of different souls that came through this house, lived there, made memories there, had experiences there. And so it really makes sense that a house, not only this old, but with this many generations of people going through it, you can only imagine that there is a strong likelihood that this house would be haunted. And especially there's probably a super high probability that a majority of those family members did end up passing away inside their house. Who knows what the cause, right. probably natural death for the most part. You know, it's just another one of those things that could contribute to possible yeah. hauntings and stuff. Well, unfortunately it wasn't uh, a lot of peaceful, natural deaths that happened here in the parent house. Uh, during this time, there was a large number of family members who actually died very violent and horrific deaths somewhere on the property or in the home, including several children as well. So, I mean, which sounds scary at first thought. You're like, holy shit, something's going on in this house. Why are these people suffering these horrific, violent deaths? But you also got to think about the time period, right? Like the 1700s, 1800s, life was fucking hard. Like I think about this all the time. I don't know about you, but I always think about 
what was it like to live in the early 1800s when there was no electricity, no running water? You could be attacked, invaded, killed at any point in time by somebody just riding along, especially if you live out in the countryside, you're very vulnerable. So, you know, there's a lot of different things and a lot of factors based on just that time period that increase your chances of dying, right? And dying a violent, horrific death because, yeah, you could be killed at any point in time by somebody that just wants your land. They want your house or, or people just got mad at each other and they murdered each other and there's no sheriff out there to arrest you. So a lot of different dark events and tragedies happened on this property. We know that for a fact. In fact, many of the deaths involved multiple children drowning in the creek on the property. And there was at least one person that we know of that was murdered. So there's this book called the black book which was basically the town's first public records. It's contained all the information. That's how we know how old this property is. And the explorer that first found it actually created it, John Smith. And so there was multiple entries about this property. So that's how we know this information. And according to this black book, there were several other people that died by hanging, which is interesting because if you've ever seen the conjuring, that's one of the things that they put in there, which by the way, the first conjuring is probably one of the best horror paranormal films oh, out by there. far like joel and i watched the trailer before this i wish i would play the trailer in here but we watched the trailer before we started recording and both of us had like chills running up and down our spines i mean we've seen the movie but i know every time i see it it's just chills every time it's so fucking creepy if you haven't watched it watch it after this episode so multiple people hung themselves on the property from the trees Another person committed suicide by drinking poison on the property and at least four men mysteriously froze to death. The matriarch of the Arnold family in the late 18th century, Mrs. John Arnold was 93 years old when family members discovered her lifeless body hanging in the barn. That's very, very frightening to think about just, just the scene uh, in the barn, but it also is something to keep in mind later on in this story. A particularly disturbing story is that of 11-year-old Prudence Arnold, a farmhand who worked for her family, actually brutally raped Prudence and then murdered her in cold blood. According to some records, Prudence was actually murdered in Uxbridge, Massachusetts, and her cause of death read, throat was cut by W.E.K. Other records say her killer was a man named Bill Norton or William Norton, and the W and W.E.K. could stand for William. That's definitely terrifying. Prudence's uncle named Johnny hung himself in the attic of the farmhouse. Others likely died by hanging in the attic as well, but that wasn't recorded in the official town records. Another notable relation to the Arnold family was a woman named Bathsheba, and her story becomes very important to the Perrin family. So for centuries, strange things have been happening around the house. As you can imagine, with all these deaths, countless rapes, suicides, murders, there was a very dark energy and presence that inhabited this home. And anybody that stepped into the home became aware of that because I I believe you can really feel uh, dark energy and, and places that are inhabited by spirits because I feel that the energy and just the air around you feels differently. And Joel actually went to Zach Bagan's Haunted Museum recently and I asked him this. I was like, What did it feel like inside of probably one of the most haunted places on the planet, considering all the things that Zach has in his museum? Oh, yeah. But what did you experience? What did you feel as far as the energy goes? Energy wise, 
like walking in there at first, like it, it just seemed like maybe another museum and, and everything like that. But as I went through each room, because they take you through, you know, 15 plus rooms with different haunted objects and different exhibits and even like things relating to serial killers and a lot of dark objects and stuff. And I must say each room and like the story that they present to you just really kind of wraps you into that. And then, you know, I was feeling like different types of energy, like maybe the most noticeable thing I experienced while I was there was I was in uh, the room of like the Divic box, like one of his most haunted objects. And I, after a while, you know, I felt normal at first standing in there like, okay, you know, this is really cool, but I'm not because they've had stories of other people actually fainting and yeah. real types of, you know, um, re- experiences from that. So yeah. I was kind of maybe searching for that a little bit. And um, I did start to feel slightly lightheaded and kind of woozy or just like sickness a yep. little bit yep. to where I could kind of feel myself start swaying a little bit. And then after maybe five, 10 seconds, I kind of got my mind back together like, okay, but it seemed like there was an energy in there that was like maybe trying to distract me or, you know, do something like that. So, but overall recommend going to the Zach Baggins museum if you haven't been already. And, you know, you and I are definitely going next time. So oh, I know I'm so, so pissed that you went without me, but no, we'll go again. Uh, Cause I want to see a lot of the shit that's in there, but I just wanted to have somebody that's been in a place with, you know, supposed haunted objects to comment on, on, you know, what they felt and feel, because I really do believe that these, you know, both objects that are cursed or haunted as well as just places where spirits inhabit that you can feel their presence. Sometimes you can, you know, sense their energy. And that's exactly what the Perrin family experienced in this farmhouse. As soon as they moved in, they definitely started feeling things. And at first, you know, they claim they never knew the history of it. So they didn't really know what had happened and taken place in the home. So they just thought things were off. But eventually, after starting to experience some of the paranormal activity in the home, they start wondering about the history. And that's when they started learning about the amount of spirits that inhabited this place and had no intention of leaving the home. And this house to this day is probably one of the world's most haunted houses. And based on the testimony from the parent family and their experiences while living in the home, uh, it's definitely seems like a very real possibility. So on that snowy day that the parents moved into their new home, they were actually warned by neighbors who knew about the house's history of tragedy to be careful. And when the seller came by to drop off the keys for their house, he actually told Roger Perrin to leave the lights on after the sun goes down. And then he continued on to say, for the sake of your family, leave the lights on at night. And actually in the state of Rhode Island, it's not required by law to inform a buyer about a supernatural presence or any paranormal activities that took place on the property. And probably because, you know, there's no way legally to prove that is true or not. You know, this is all based on the individual's experience, but it is interesting because I feel like that happens a lot where people don't know the histories of their home that, you know, for paranormal reasons or not. And so the parent family had no idea about this dark, tragic history surrounding the farmhouse. Well, I feel like it's just the real estate agent just trying to get the deal. 
you know? Oh yeah. It's all about the profit. So, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Definitely just trying to sell the home because it probably yeah. sat on the market. Cause there's probably people out there that do Smart know the history. People who read it's about like, Fuck it. that, I'm not buying that house. Yeah. What are you talking about? That house is haunted. So pretty soon after the family moved into this new home of theirs, I mean, new old home, it wasn't the end of financial trouble for them. At some point, a pipe burst and flooded their business, actually, and to repair the damage, they had to sell most of their land, leaving the farmhouse and barn sitting on just 8.5 acres instead of 200. Immediately, my reaction to them moving into this house based on the history is that why would they, you know, as soon as they start experiencing things, why wouldn't they actually leave? And this is probably one of the biggest reasons why people think this story is bullshit is because why wouldn't you move out a house that is this haunted and, you know, has all these things going on in it? Why stay? And the thing about the parent families, because of financial troubles, they were forced to stay in this home. They had put all their money and savings into it. And therefore they, they had no way to move out of it. Even if they sold it, which it would be very, very difficult to sell it for a profit and then move somewhere else. So they were there for nearly 10 years and the amount of dread and just doom and gloom this family went through over this decade is truly astounding. But at first when they moved in, that wasn't the case. Everything seemed fine. The only strange things the family noticed were small and easily explained away. They'd hear odd noises and notice some small belongings mysteriously moving around the house. Like they'd put it one place and then they'd, you know, go to another room and boom, there would be that, you know, that thing. And like we were saying earlier, you can only imagine the amount of sounds and strange things that probably did happen in a house this old. I mean, I'm sure there's creaks and doors squeaking and, you know, all sorts of different sounds, the sound of, you know, the furnace coming on and things like that. So clearly there was going to be some weird things for them to hear. And so that's why at first they're like, okay, it's just all normal. You know, this is all just comes along with living in a house from the 1700s. But then Carolyn started noticing that her broom would go missing and she would eventually find it in a completely different area of the house from where she had left it. And sometimes she heard a scraping sound against the kettle in the kitchen or she'd hear the bristles of the broom on the floor. And when she went in to check, no one was around. Occasionally she found neat piles of dirt on the kitchen floor right after she cleaned it. And she would ask her daughters, hey, did you guys, you know, bring this dirt in? Did you start sweeping it up? but none of them admitted to actually doing anything, making any of the noises, or bringing in the dirt. Andrea was the only daughter who had her own bedroom because she was the oldest. The second oldest, Nancy and Christine, shared a room, and the youngest two, Sydney and April, shared a room as well. Cindy, the second youngest daughter, would find her belongings moved around her in April's room, never in the same place where she left them. She'd also find that her toys would all be shoved underneath her bed when she didn't put them there. And she assumed that it was her older sister just playing a prank on her. When she couldn't find something, she would just demand to know where they hid it. And the older girls would be like, oh, what are you talking about? We didn't touch your toys. When the older girls started noticing their belongings moving or missing, they started getting suspicious too. And because they thought they were all messing with each other, they all started fighting with one another. And they stopped sharing clothes and toys and stopped visiting each other's rooms. And these five sisters who used to be so close and got along great, all of a sudden were now angry with each other and fighting all the time. So much so that their mother Carolyn had to intervene and she would tell the girls to stop fighting. But the mysterious disturbances and objects moving around and weird noises continued. But then the girls started to experience things that couldn't be explained by just blaming one another. 
they actually started seeing apparitions around the house. And most of these apparitions or spirits were friendly, but a few more would become more disgruntled. But overall, they seemed fairly harmless. There was a young boy who wandered through the house aimlessly, and for months the spirit of a woman came into Cindy and April's room and actually kissed Cindy on the forehead. At first she thought it was her mother, but she recalled that her mother smelled like ivory soap, and this spirit smelled like flowers and fruit. The girls actually got pretty used to having these spirits around, and they started interacting with them, which only grew their fondness towards them, and the younger girls even viewed the spirits as playmates and babysitters, which is just so wild to think about, like your kids are all playing with spirits, like that, that must have been weird to walk in on. But being with the spirits made them feel comfort. The girls viewed them as kind, and they were just there to keep them company. And even now, looking back at this, they would talk with so much fondness and about these spirits and how playful they were. And they'd come out and they would, you know, play pranks on each other. And, you know, they were just like harmless pranksters. But things started to take a turn for the worst when the spirits went from quietly moving objects to throwing them across rooms, smashing them against the walls and breaking. Glass items were also smashed and the doors would slam shut constantly. One particularly terrifying incident happened during a game the girls liked to play that they called hide and clap. And during the game, the person who is it is blindfolded. Everyone else runs and hides. And when the blindfolded person claps, everyone hiding claps back. And the first person that is found is then it. About six months after they moved into the house, the girls were playing a game of hide and clap. Cindy decided to hide in the woodshed. She actually climbed inside a wood box and covered it with a wood panel. The panel wasn't latched in place and nothing was on top of it, but once she realized she wouldn't be found in that spot, she tried to push the panel off, but it wouldn't move at all. And all of a sudden she realized that she was trapped inside this wood box. There was no holes in the box either, so it was obviously very hot and she was running out of air. And so she started screaming at the top of her lungs and started crying as well. Eventually, she was making enough noise that her sister Nancy actually found her in the box. And she was just sweating from the heat and crying hysterically because she felt like she had been trapped inside that box. And what's so weird is you think, okay, well, the wood panel that she put on top of her must have been really heavy was the reason why she couldn't move it. But how did she get it there in the first place if it was heavy? So clearly, it became heavy while she was in the box because. Nancy was able to easily lift it off the top of the box and she couldn't figure out why Cindy didn't just push the panel off of her. And after this happened, they all sort of started realizing that these spirits were kind of turning on them and they actually went to their parents, Carolyn and Roger and said, Hey, we're dealing with these spirits where, you know, this just happened to us. What are you guys going to do about this? And Roger and Carolyn were like, what are you talking about? You guys are just making this up. There's no spirits in this house. They're not trapping you in wooden boxes. They're not throwing things around your rooms. What are you talking about? It's just a bunch of malarkey, man. And what's interesting about that is spirits really only want to present themselves to people that they choose. And, you know, children are more like vulnerable. So they're going to display themselves to children as opposed to the parents, which may explain why the parents didn't see any of those apparitions because they were trying to hide themselves from them or something. Right, which makes a lot of sense because you got to get the children on board first, right? You got to, especially if you're evil spirit, you know, and you feed off of fear and everything and, and children are the most vulnerable and easiest to scare. So 
that's exactly what they did is they started, you know, started scaring the children, you get the children on board, then you're able to get the parents on board as well. And that's exactly what happened. But eventually Carolyn and Roger did start noticing the paranormal activity that their children had been talking about. And they quickly realized that there was some type of force at play in this home. And for them, it seemed like the positive spirits, you know, the uh, benevolent ones were avoiding them because their first encounters with spirits was much more disturbing. One of the first things that Roger noticed is that when he'd come home from work, he would be hit with this disgusting, awful smell of like rotting flesh as soon as he opened the door. Now, I can only imagine what that would be like and what you would be thinking in your mind. Like, you'd probably be thinking, somebody just took a shit on the floor. <laughs> what is going on? Or somebody just, you know, something yeah. just died in the living room. Like, decomposing bodies of any kind definitely has a unique smell. I don't know firsthand. I've never smelled anything like that before. But from people who have, decomposition has just its own nasty smell. So I can only imagine how strong and potent that must have been walking in and how confused Roger must have been when he started smelling that in his own home. One morning, shortly before dawn, Carolyn was woken up by something moving across the room. She opened her eyes more and she saw a very tall woman in an old gray dress and her head was hanging to the side, kind of like crooked over. And it looked like a sack of cobwebs with little tendrils hanging down. That's a very nasty sight to wake up to. So basically just a creepy ass old woman spirit, ghostly figure that is now threatening Carolyn and demanding that her and her family leave the house immediately and find somewhere else to live. I would be like, yes, ma'am. I'm out. (laughs) Say, thank you for the warning. I will be vacating the (laughs) premises. Give me 24 hours. For real. Because... Yeah, seriously, that must have been terrifying to see this woman. And she was nasty, absolutely nasty looking. And the spirit warned her that if they did not leave, then they would be, quote, driven out with doom and gloom. If a spirit fucking tells you that, you fucking leave. (laughs) Yeah. You don't wait around to see what happens. And unfortunately for the parent family, they just weren't in a place financially to do this. And and I think a lot of people would probably be like, okay, this is just a weird experience I'm having. You know, this will pass and, you know, we'll be fine. I don't think anybody's going to move out the next day necessarily if they just have one encounter with this. But also, they just didn't have the financial means to do it. As time went on, Carolyn started feeling tiny pinches on her skin. Sometimes she was woken up by something slapping her across the face. And it wasn't Roger. The girls also noticed their mother was getting more and more agitated the longer they lived in the house. Carolyn even saw images of fire that she soon realized was a warning to leave the house. More and more of her belongings started disappearing without a trace. Sometimes as soon as she turned her back, something would disappear. And soon, these harmless, friendly spirits that the girls had, you know, been hanging out with, having a good time with, getting to know, were replaced by menacing dark spirits. And in their presence, the girls could feel pure evil. These spirits were resentful and clearly angry. Once Carolyn started having these really negative experiences with these other spirits, she decided that she needed to look into the history of the home a little bit more 
And I believe it was around this time that they did find out the history of the house a little bit. And they knew that, you know, there was a lot of really, really negative things that happened in this home over the years. And obviously after finding out this information, this just brought the fear and the worry to the next level for the parent family, especially Carolyn. She grew very, very worried about the safety and well-being of her family. And once Cindy told her oldest sister, Andrea, that she could hear a disembodied voice. It was telling her that there were seven bodies buried in the walls. And when Carolyn was doing research on the home, she learned that seven was the number of verified deaths that took place in the house. That's pretty freaky to think about, to have that connection to the actual history of the home. And your kid is telling you, hey, mom, I heard a disembodied voice say seven bodies buried in the walls. Holy shit. One of the apparitions that the girls would see was a spirit named Manny. Manny was a creepy man with a crooked smile who would stand in the corner of their bedroom and watch them. Okay, hold up. That is so fucking creepy. Like that is, I don't know about you, but that's one of my, like something maybe crosses my mind. Yeah. Every night when I'm just laying in bed, like checking the corners, (laughs) like, is anyone fucking looking at me and shit? Like, yeah. So creepy. And a creepy old man at that with a crooked smile. Oh, that smile, dude. What? (laughs) Damn. From here, the activity only got worse. Furniture started moving across the floor on its own in the presence of the family. Doors and windows opened and would slam shut randomly. Sometimes the doors wouldn't close at all, no matter how hard you tried. Picture frames fell from the walls and shattered for no reason. And once, an orange in the kitchen oozed blood. Every morning at 5.15 a.m., everyone would be woken up in the house by a terrible, awful smell of rotting flesh and death. During the night, one particular spirit tortured the five girls. It would pull on their legs and hair as they tried to sleep. Another spirit chose to torment eight-year-old Cindy. It whispered in her ear repeatedly about the dead soldiers buried in the walls of the house. One spirit would keep the girls up through all hours of the night repeatedly crying, Mama, Mama. Another voice echoed through the halls at night saying, Get out. Get out. When they would hear this voice, Cindy and the younger sisters would run into Andrea's room at night crying, and they slept in her bed shaking and terrified that this demonic spirit would return. Some of the things the spirits did to the five girls, they've never even spoken about because it was that horrifying the only thing they have said is that what happened to them was far more sinister than moving furniture and unexplained smells no one in the family will give details about this particular spirit that actually physically tormented the girls andrea has implied that her and her sisters were molested saying that the spirit was a very bad man who terrorized the five little girls sometimes when the smell of rotting flesh appeared Some of their beds would even levitate several inches off the floor. And occasionally, the heating system of the house would mysteriously malfunction. And it was in, of course, a dirt-floored basement, which the entire family avoided. And even Roger, when he'd have to go downstairs to check on the heating system, he would go down very cautiously, always looking all around him. And he said that when he'd go down into the basement, he would immediately feel a cold, stinking dark presence right behind him and the family believed that whatever this particularly evil 
evil spirit was lived in the basement. That's what's so interesting is that these evil spirits just pick the basement. You know, when I was at the Zach Baggins Museum, so the house itself had, you know, lots of families come in and out through it. And yeah, it's even seen death as well. So the basement of the Zach Baggins Museum is the most haunted place, you know, in the entire, you know, yeah, museum. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. So if you want to see the basement, you got to make sure you get that RIP pass that, <laughs> or you're not going down there. But they have a spirit box down there. Interesting. Stuff, so. so there's a lot of activity still. Yeah. Going maybe on. you can talk to something down there. Yeah, it's interesting that it's it's easier for that. They're the spirits are more active underground. It seems yeah. like it's very weird how that works. All right, let's talk about the most evil demonic spirit in this home that specifically chose to torment Carolyn. This particular spirit actually lingered inside of this farmhouse for centuries. This is a very very old spirit, and Roger and Carolyn would soon learn that this evil spirit was named Bathsheba. Bathsheba was an actual real woman. Her full name was Bathsheba Thayer, and she was born in Rhode Island in 1812. According to historical records, she married a man named Judson Sherman, who was a fellow Rhode Islander in Thompson, Connecticut on March 10, 1844. They usually would have a farmhand living with them as well in order to help Judson on the farm. And they even had a child together. They had a daughter named Julia in 1845. When Julia was still an infant, they actually found her dead. And her mother, Bathsheba, was charged with the murder. Because Julia had been stabbed through the back of the neck at the base of her skull with a long, sharp object, which people thought must have been one of Bathsheba's knitting needles. Around town, Bathsheba was known to be a witch who practiced witchcraft and that she had actually murdered her child in order to sacrifice it to the devil. She even wanted to summon the devil so that the devil would give her the gift of eternal beauty. And she offered up her firstborn child in return. So because the people of the town knew this, Bathsheba was arrested and charged with Julia's murder. But she was soon released because there was not enough evidence against her that would hold up in court. At some point, Bathsheba was watching a neighbor's infant who died while in her care. And this only fueled the rumors that she was this devil-worshipping witch. And what's crazy is that Bathsheba and Judson had two more children that didn't make it to the age of seven. Edward, who was born in 1847, and George, who was born in 1853. What are the chances that all of her children don't even make it past the age of seven? I don't know. I find that very suspicious as well. But again, in the 19th century, childhood deaths were very common. But losing three young children was definitely suspicious to the people in the town especially since their infant had died a violent death, Julia. In March of 1849, when Bathsheba was 37 years old, they had a son named Herbert Sherman, who actually survived. And as far as we know, Bathsheba stayed in her house, the farmhouse, until her death and just was an outcast of the community because they all thought she was evil. Their son, Herbert, married a woman named Anna in 1881 and had a family of his own. And Bathsheba actually ended up living a pretty long life. She lived far into her 70s, And many people believe that her long life was attributed to the sacrifice she made to the devil in Julia. Bathsheba Sherman actually died on May 25th, 1885, four years after her husband died. And apparently one of the conditions of her deal with the devil was that her body would be turned to stone upon her death. 
and it was actually reported that Bathsheba died from a bizarre form of paralysis that was probably caused by a stroke. And doctors at the time obviously couldn't fully explain this condition, and this actually frightened him quite a bit because it did seem like she turned to stone. Some people believe that Bathsheba actually died when she hung herself from a tree in the backyard of the farmhouse. I don't think we can confirm that, but a lot of people did believe this. And as a spirit, the devil doomed Bathsheba to live amongst the living, tormenting them for all of eternity. And she was especially resentful of women like Carolyn Perrin. Bathsheba was jealous of the beauty that she had lost forever. She never got that eternal beauty, whatever that looks like. And anyone who lived on the property of her family home was cursed by Bathsheba. There's actually one photo that exists that may include Bathsheba. In the photo, she is standing outside the farmhouse wearing a mask. She's surrounded by people, yet standing alone with a vacant stare. This photo was taken approximately in 1885, shortly before her death. Bathsheba is likely wearing a medical mask in the photo in order to protect her from the number of different bacteria-borne illnesses that were ravaging the country at this time. This photo is very eerie. I must say, if you've never seen this photo before, it's actually pretty impressive in the fact that we have such a clear look at what the farm looked like and this woman Bathsheba. And it does look like, yeah, you can't see the outline of her mouth. You can see her eyes, but she's clearly got a mask on. But why is she standing like out in the middle? Everybody else looks like they're posing for a photograph. And then Bathsheba is just like there just there standing with a blank stare, not even looking at the camera no. like some of the other people look like they are. And yeah, everybody else is facing the camera. Yeah. Like their eyes are directly uh, pointed at the camera, and yet Bathsheba's got her, she's like looking at the ground or something over to the side. It's very creepy, honestly. And to this day, you can actually go and see where Bathsheba and Judson Sherman are buried in Harrisburg, Rhode Island. There's this historic Baptist cemetery that they were put in along with their three children, who died young, which is very interesting because this is also kind of a point of contention about whether or not Bathsheba was really a witch because why would they put her in a Baptist cemetery, right? Why would they even give her a burial? Typically they would just burn witches at the stake. So the fact that she ended up in a cemetery definitely makes some people think that there's a chance she wasn't a witch and she wasn't as evil and, and, you know, crazy as people made her out to be. So this is why the Perrin family and Carolyn specifically believe that this evil spirit that was tormenting her was Bathsheba Sherman. However, the spirit never explicitly claimed to be Bathsheba to Carolyn. But I mean, it kind of makes sense, right? That it would be Bathsheba. I think one of the reasons why Carolyn believes it was Bathsheba as well is because she believes that this evil spirit when she was alive did kill herself by hanging herself. Because again, Whenever Bathsheba appeared to the family, her head was always bent severely to one side as if it was permanently broken and she had the sickly gray skin, just the most freaky looking entity you could think of. That's what they were dealing with. And when the haunting started to escalate, a family friend named Barbara, who was part of a local paranormal group, said, hey, go get some help. I know of just the people to help you. Their names are Ed and Lorraine Warren. So in October 1973, she told them about a lecture that they were going to be at and, you know, go talk to them, go ask them to come to your home and take a look and see if they can figure out what's going on. So that's exactly what Carolyn did. 
she went and met up with Ed and Lorraine Warren after one of their lectures and said, hey, can you please help my family? Ed and Lorraine Warren were very involved with this case. This was one of the cases that they thoroughly investigated, and they were very, very intrigued when Carolyn told them about the different spirits that they were seeing and all of the paranormal activity in their home. And in case you aren't familiar with Ed and Lorraine Warren, they were legendary paranormal investigators. I mean, they're definitely one of the most popular duos in the paranormal world. They are no longer with us, but while they were alive, they investigated over 10,000 cases of paranormal activity. Ed Warren was a World War II veteran and former police officer, and he got interested in the paranormal on his own, and he actually became a self-proclaimed demonologist. Lorraine, though, definitely had a gift. She's a psychic medium. She's definitely clairvoyant. She's definitely tapped into the other side. So she was kind of the one that would communicate with the spirits and demonic entities that they encountered on these different cases. They even founded the New England Society for Psychic Research, which is still around today, and it's one of the oldest paranormal investigation groups in all of New England. And at first, Carolyn was actually hesitant to contact anybody because she was worried they wouldn't believe her because this is obviously a crazy story to anybody else, but to her, this is happening to her in real life. And Roger didn't want to contact anybody because he was very worried about his wife's fragile mental state. He thought she was, you know, kind of going loony a little bit on her and financially they couldn't do anything because they didn't have any money. So they didn't know, you know, they couldn't pay anybody to do anything really. But Ed and Lorraine Warren were very, very interested in this case. And as soon as they got the full details from Carolyn about what was going on, they were like, definitely something we want to take a look at. And Carolyn was ecstatic because she was very surprised that not only did the Warrens believe her, but that they were willing to help her for free. Roger, on the other hand, was definitely more hesitant about Ed and Lorraine Warren and didn't want to have just random strangers in the house. But when the Warrens finally came to the home, Lorraine stepped into the kitchen for the first time and she said, quote, I feel a dark presence and her name is Bathsheba. So right there, Carolyn remembered the history on the home and she realized that Lorraine knew exactly what she was talking about. And they made that connection that clearly the woman that had died or had killed herself at the property was most likely Bathsheba. This was really a breakthrough for Carolyn that she got some validation from Lorraine Warren that, okay, I'm not just crazy. There really is this evil entity in the home and it is this woman named Bathsheba that's literally emotionally and physically tormenting her. I mean, at times she even felt like Bathsheba was possessing her to some extent. There was one particular time where Bathsheba made herself known. Carolyn was lying on the couch when all of a sudden she felt this horrible pain in her calf. The muscle immediately began to spasm and she jumped up in pain. And when she looked down at her leg, it was bleeding quite a bit. There was already a pool of blood on the couch cushion. And when she looked around, she couldn't find anything that could have caused this wound and for her to start bleeding all of a sudden. Finally, after she got the wound to stop bleeding for a second, she noticed that there was a perfect circular wound. She had no idea how she got this though but it looked like she had been stabbed with a knitting needle. And this only reaffirmed to Lorraine that they were dealing with this evil spirit, Bathsheba. 
And when Lorraine also heard the history on the home and heard about the fact that Bathsheba had been accused of murdering her infant with a knitting needle, she realized that most likely what had happened is that Bathsheba actually took this needle with her into death in order to use it against the living. Dealing with this evil entity was extremely exhausting from an emotional perspective for Carolyn. It was a lot to deal with, as you can imagine. And it felt like that the goal of Bathsheba was to basically drive her insane because it was very clear that this spirit did not want the Perrin family living in her home. For a long time, Roger did not really believe everything that was going on in the home. I mean, he was definitely skeptical. He was gone at work a lot. So Carolyn was home, you know, alone and with the kids and was having all these experiences with Bathsheba. But then Bathsheba put her sights on Roger But instead of tormenting him, she started doing things that were very pleasurable to Roger. Bathsheba became a succubus. She would often caress Roger tenderly and whisper softly in his ear. And so he really enjoyed having Bathsheba around. I mean, she was definitely uh, very pleasurable for him. Let's just put it that way. And over the next several years, the Warrens continued to investigate and visit the Perrin family off and on and investigate the haunting happening in their home. But things got to a point where the family believed that the Warren's presence in their home was actually aggravating the spirits and making the activity worse. Lorraine obviously just wanted to help and she was determined to help. But in her eyes, this was a very, very negative case. And the small children in this house were in danger. Carolyn and Roger's oldest daughter, Andrea, believed that Bathsheba wanted her father all to herself and was prepared to do anything including harm her mother, to get what she wanted. It's also been noted by local historians that Bathsheba, when she was alive, was extremely mean and violent towards the help of the farmhouse. She would often starve and beat the men who worked on the farm, which is kind of crazy to think about, but maybe she was really this evil bitch. Lorraine Warren started to believe that the severity of this particular haunting could have been caused by the Perrin family's lack of faith. Because the Perrin family wasn't a religious family at all. And Lorraine believed that religion could drive back the evil spirits. Which is a great point because I was honestly surprised that the Perrin family didn't get a priest like way back once all this stuff started. Because, you know, we've seen in plenty of cases a priest's presence and and their uh, spiritual blessing can rid certain spirits. Right. But if you're not a religious person, you would never even think to do that. You know, you just yeah. think like something weird's going on. So I get why they didn't, but, you know, or, you know, they just didn't believe it at all at first themselves. I think this was a thing that, you know, they really started believing in as it was happening to them. Like, I don't think they came into this whole haunting event being very spiritual at all. So this was a very big shift for them. And, Lorraine believed that, you know, faith, specifically the Catholic faith, is sort of the key to battling these evil or demonic spirits. Because in their world, I mean, there's angels and demons, there's heaven and hell. And so it makes sense that if you're not religious, that you can fall under demonic attack far easier. You're more susceptible to being both possessed or just haunted by an evil spirit or entity. So that's why Lorraine and Ed would specifically bring, you know, the Catholic faith and prayer and relics and uh, crucifix and things like that, holy water into 
homes in order to try and rid the houses of evil spirits. During their investigation, they discovered at one point the farmhouse had a minister and his wife living in it. And while they're living there, they didn't experience anything, which she attributed to their faith, that their faith kept them safe and, you know, created sort of this shield around them, which maybe it did. And that's why they didn't experience Bathsheba or any of the other evil spirits, which I'm like, eh, I don't think that's necessarily true. Just because you have faith doesn't mean you're not going to be visited by spirits. I think that's a kind of naive, but you know, that's what Lorraine Warren believed. During one of their visits, Lorraine saw something in the corner of a room that she described as one of the most grotesque things she had ever seen. And at this moment, she called on her faith to cast it out. She told it to go away in the name of God, and it did leave, according to her. Lorraine really believed that faith was her best protection in these haunting cases, and that the only reason she was able to do this line of work was because God was protecting her. What's interesting is that despite all of their faith, and different rituals, Ed and Lorraine Warren were not able to stop any of the paranormal activity or drive away the evil spirits that possessed this home. During their investigation, they even separated the family members to interview them. That's something they always did. They wanted to see if you know people were making up their stories and see if they all had the same story. And in the Perrin family's case, they definitely did have very similar explanations for what was happening and these different spirits that they were seeing. So, the Warrens decided to conduct a seance in the most haunted area of the house, the basement, which is basically you get together and you attempt to contact the spirits and have open dialogue with them. Really usually you light a bunch of candles uh, when you do this sort of ritual. And as far as we know, Lorraine has never spoken publicly about the seance. And whenever it's been brought up, she becomes visibly disturbed So something happened during the seance. They even brought in a priest, another medium, and a technical crew. The children weren't allowed to attend, but Andrea and Cindy crept down to the basement stairs. And the children weren't allowed to attend the seance because obviously they didn't know what was going to happen. Things could go sideways, so you know they made them stay out of the basement. But this did not stop Andrea and Cindy from creeping down the basement stairs and watching in secret. This was a very bad decision on Andrea's part because this was the only time that she felt truly terrified for their lives while living in the house. Apparently during the seance, when Lorraine tried to contact the evil spirits in the house, Carolyn, their mother, appeared to become possessed by one of the spirits. And Andrea remembers watching in horror as her mother started speaking a very strange language or basically Latin or speaking in tongues, and her tone of voice was definitely not her own. She then witnessed her mother, who was sitting in a chair on the dirt floor, rise up and start levitating. Carolyn was then thrown across the room by an invisible force, and Andrea said it was like throwing a rag doll. Her mother was just being whipped about the room. Andrea then felt faint and thought she was going to pass out. She was so afraid, and this craziness went on for several hours. Carolyn's body was twisted and bent into unnatural positions, literally like Ragdoll just being, you know, thrown around. The seance clearly went sideways. I mean, Carolyn was being possessed, being tossed around, tortured, but eventually it did stop. And when she returned to normal, her husband Roger was fucking pissed 
as any husband would be, to experience your wife being tormented and possessed by this Bathsheba spirit. And obviously this all happened because Bathsheba got very upset that Lorraine and Ed were there and just decided to take it to the maximum level of torture she possibly could from a spirit form. And I'm sure Roger felt so powerless, you know, seeing his wife go through all that and nothing he could do about it. That must have been so hard for him. And he was just fed up with Ed and Lorraine Warren at this point because it just seemed like anytime they were around his wife, she just went crazy. Like whether it was being possessed or tortured by Bathsheba or just being completely frightened about what was happening in the home. So he decided that it was time to throw them out. He was done. He said, no more. Get out of my house. We're done with you. And the Warrens left, but they were very, very worried about the Perrin family because they believed that the farmhouse had a portal in the basement, which basically allowed these evil spirits to come through, which you're not able to prove that, obviously. But the Warrens really believed that something very, very evil was inhabiting this house and that they should leave immediately. After the night of the seance, the Warrens never returned to the farmhouse and they never actually did anything to help the situation there. They definitely witnessed extreme amounts of paranormal activity there and spirits, but they never did anything that actually helped the Perrin family in the end. And one of the reasons why I believe the Perrin family is the fact that they were never really, really religious. And so, you know, they really didn't totally agree with Ed and Lorraine Warren's, you know, synopsis of their investigation there. And many of the parent sisters would later say that they didn't really agree with how the Warrens actually studied and conducted their investigation in the farmhouse. At the end of the day, though, they did believe that something definitely unexplainable was happening inside the house. And the parent sisters have said that there is no doubt in their minds that if Carolyn and Roger would have been able to move them out of the home sooner, then they would have definitely moved out. But again, they couldn't afford to move. So they had to stay there. But unfortunately, the farmhouse was losing value every day that they were there. The economy was still in a very bad place and no one was in the market for that type of property. So no one was moving even to their area at all. And the family didn't really have any relatives or friends who could house seven people. So there was nowhere for them to move. Man, that would be so hard to like feel like you're trapped. Yeah, literally in a, trapped. In a, in a place like that, just being tormented and fuck. Yeah, I mean, I can't that's, imagine what they what they fucking went through. Dark times, well, dark and, times. And that's why I believe this case more so than many of the other Warren cases is because A, the Perrin family kicked the Warrens out because they're like, you're making this shit worse. Mm-hmm. We don't agree with how you're doing things. They weren't super religious. And also they had pretty legitimate reasons for why they couldn't move. It makes sense. You know, in some other paranormal cases, it's very, you know, they're renting a place so you could easily move out of a rental if it was that bad. And there's other cases where it's just more believable that for the people to just move. Like it's not that hard, but for the parent family's case, it's very, very real that they were trapped. Like they could not get out of this house. There was nowhere for them to go. They didn't have the money to just go buy something else. So they really were absolutely trapped inside of this haunted farmhouse. They would end up living in this house for over a decade. But as soon as each of the parents' sisters were old enough to leave, they 
got the fuck out of there. Let's just put it that way. Andrea went off to college and Cindy moved into her bedroom, a room they believed was the least haunted, actually. As soon as Cindy graduated high school, she left too. But eventually, Roger and Carolyn were finally able to sell the house. It wasn't until 1980, literally over 10 years after they had been in the home, that they were able to permanently leave the residence. The Perrin family believes that while they were living in this home, there may have been up to nine different spirits that they dealt with as roommates. Imagine that. Once they sold the home, they actually moved to Georgia in order to start a whole new life, actually, and they completely left it all behind in Rhode Island. Good for them. I mean, I'm, I'm happy they finally got that chance to start over again. And But come on, like 10 years. Like, think about that. Like, that is so long in a place that the last place you want to be at. And, you know, that that long of a time will definitely change a person. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it really will. And I mean, the thing about the Perrin family is that many of the sisters, especially Andrea, uh, some of the others, not so much, but many of them have gone on to give interviews and write books talking about their actual experiences in the home. I mean, there's so much more details to this story than we can fit into one episode, but there, there's so much so that, I mean, Hollywood approached and approached the Warrens to come and create the conjuring series, which we talk about quite a bit on this show. And it was very, very popular when the conjuring first came out, it made 41.5 million during its opening weekend in theaters. And it literally became a franchise off of that. I mean, there's six or so movies I think out right now in the conjuring universe. There's whole YouTube videos that go and explain Annabelle and you know, the different conjuring movies, different cases. And obviously Ed and Lorraine Warren, benefited immensely off of this case and many other cases out there. And unfortunately, because of this, a lot of people not only discredit the Warrens, but they also say a lot of these families made up these stories about these hauntings that they experienced. And I mean, I'm on the fence for some of them, but I think with the Perrin family, I really do believe that they really experienced all of this activity and potentially this evil spirit Bathsheba. I got to say my main reason for believing in this case is because of Andrea. She went on to write a book series called House of Darkness, House of Light, chronicling the family's experience in the house. And there is so much stuff in here. I mean, there's so much information in there. Again, we got to remember that one point there's that time that they had a physical encounter with the spirit that they don't even want to speak about. So, I mean, a lot of stuff happened. Andrea ended up publishing the first book of her book series in 2011 And it was really the first time that her story, her complete story got out to the public, that it wasn't, you know, being told from the Warren's perspective because they had their case files, which is what the conjuring movie really pulled from a lot from that. Obviously the parent family was involved with the movie to some extent, but I don't think the parent family made much money off the conjuring, if any at all. But Andrea is really the only one that I've seen out in the public talking about their experiences. Many of the other sisters, including their mother, Carolyn, just really don't want to talk about it anymore. I mean, they're trying to forget it and leave it behind. I mean, this was such a terrible part of their family's history. So many of them have just decided to stay out, stay out of the spotlight and they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to interview about it which rightfully so. I mean, if you go through something like this, this was extremely traumatic for many of them. You know, you have to remember that Andrea was a lot older than her other sisters during this whole haunting experience. So obviously it was easier for her to really deal with it and cope with it. And I think Andrea kind of has more of a connection to 
the other side. She's a very interesting woman. That's for sure. I've, there's some interviews on YouTube of her that you can check out if you want to kind of hear her side of things. Cause she really gives kind of a different perspective to her experience in, in the home. And according to Andrea, she says that the conjuring movie is mostly a true story, but obviously there's some elements of fiction tied in. They got to make it, you know, more jump scary and things like that. But at the end of the movie, the person that plays Ed performs an exorcism on the mother. And of course the evil spirits are gone forever, but in the real life version, the spirits never left. And Lorraine is adamant that her and Ed would never perform an exorcism. They said they would never do that because they believe it must be performed by a Catholic priest with proper permission from the church. So obviously that was completely made up for Hollywood and makes for a better film. But not only that, there's other discrepancies in stories from members of the parent family that don't really match up with the case files of Ed and Lorraine Warren. So that's why a lot of people believe that Ed and Lorraine Warren kind of, you know, they would go into these paranormal investigations and they may not get as much as what they wrote in their case files because a lot of people believe that the Warrens are kind of frauds in the sense that they were really just out to make money. They were just really trying to, you know, get book deals and movie deals by, you know, sort of playing up the things that they experienced. Yeah. I totally think they might've stretched out a lot of the actual facts, the, you know, the actual things that they captured, you know, out of proportion and stuff, but it makes sense to tell or try and tell an interesting story. Yeah, exactly. I mean, maybe they're entertainers more than they are paranormal investigators. I mean, it's very controversial. I mean, a lot of people have different feelings about the Warrens and, you know, I'm on the fence. I, I, I don't, lean one way or another. I think it's definitely interesting, but I do see that there's a possibility for them to embellish things and kind of blow things out of proportion a little bit because yeah, I mean, look how successful the conjuring series has been. They've literally, you know, millions of dollars been made. But then again, a lot of people say, where's them, you know, why aren't Ed and Lorraine Warren more wealthy than they are? And, you know, they still keep their files locked down. Like, why would they do that if this was all just a fraud? So I don't know. I don't know what I really think about uh, all this. I, I think that maybe, maybe not. That's, that's my best answer. <laughs> but some other interesting events did occur actually while Andrea was on the set of the conjuring film, she claimed an invisible force blew through the facility and swept away everything in its path. Cameras and lights went flying and people in the path couldn't keep their feet on the ground, literally swept people off their feet. And she said, when this happened, whatever this force was felt eerily similar to the ones she felt as a child in the farmhouse. That's crazy. And there's this whole idea of cursed films and things like that. Like perhaps, you know, there's certain movies that recreate essentially real events that happened and that these entities or spirits can somehow sense this or know about this. And so they make their presence known. It's very, very interesting. That is a very interesting point you made because it just makes me go back and think about the Perrin family after the 10 years of all those experiences and maybe why most of them didn't want to speak out to the public because they might think that they would have to relive all of those negative experiences again, just like getting that information out, which could maybe bring those uh, evil spirits or entities back their way kind of yeah. like a, in a summoning type of thing. Right. So it might've been smart after all of that to keep your mouth shut a little bit, you know? Right. No, you're absolutely, that's a great point. Cause I mean, 
that's a real possibility. I think a lot of people believe that you can kind of conjure. I mean, the parent family literally said that the evil spirits never left. There was no ridding of the spirits that were there. They stay there to this day for as far as they're concerned. But when they left the home, they thought they left the spirits behind. So perhaps, yeah, maybe this film almost like conjures them back up, which is crazy to think about because God, I mean, it kind of explains this uh, force that swept through the sets, which is wild. And what's interesting is that Carolyn had actually decided not to come to the set that day. And she decided to stay back at home last minute. And at the exact time that this unknown force ripped past members of her family on the set, she said she fell and broke her hip. And while she was laying on a bed in the hospital, she says she could feel the presence of Bathsheba. That's fucking crazy because that clearly shows that this, you know, recreating this stuff can actually trigger activity, can actually bring, you know, create some sort of momentum for these evil spirits. That's really scary. And, and being in a hospital too, like that just makes me think of the grudge, like one of the scariest movies I saw when I was growing up and they were, they were in a hospital too. And, you know, they just saw the grudge and how creepy that was. Just seeing a woman in that type of environment just freaks me the fuck out. Oh, I know. Yeah. Bathsheba's reputation to this day is definitely not very good. A lot of people believe that she was this, you know, witch that killed her child in the name of the devil and and all that. I mean, other people say the opposite, but I mean, it, it wasn't uncommon during this time for women to be accused of witchcraft and practicing the dark arts. So it's, it's very possible that this whole story is all real, but on the flip side, it's also possible it's just a rumor because it was so common. But after the parent family sold the farmhouse, it ended up going through several owners and each one experienced some level of paranormal activity while living in the house. I mean, obviously, you know, probably not quite as intense. I mean, you'd hear the noises and things like that. I would say more unexplained activity, right? And some of these owners, not all, actually fled the house screaming and fearing for their lives. One man actually moved in and started doing renovations on the house and he ended up leaving suddenly leaving behind his clothes and tools. And he never even went back to the house and just sold it to the next people who actually lived next door, but they never actually moved in. And the house ended up sitting vacant for years. In 1987, the house was bought by Norma Sutcliffe and Jerry Nelfridge. And they have said that the farmhouse is definitely not haunted. The couple hasn't experienced anything while living in the house and they wouldn't characterize it as supernatural or paranormal and they were never visited by spirits. In 2005, they did allow the film crew from Ghost Hunters, from Sci-Fi Channel, and the crew did find some evidence of paranormal activity. They felt multiple cold spots and did witness doors opening on their own, which this did surprise the owner, Norma, a little bit. Uh, She was convinced that they wouldn't find anything, and when she saw the evidence, she was like, okay, this is definitely kind of weird, and oh yeah, Jerry and I have experienced some odd things in the house now that you guys have seen it. Uh, They said a door in the front hall would bang for no reason. And they said sometimes we'd hear people talking, footsteps or doors opening in another room. And Jerry's chair in his study would mysteriously vibrate, which I'm like, hmm, convenient you guys left that out for a long time. I think it was just more of a test. Don't you think like they wanted to test the ghost hunters and be like, oh, yeah, nothing is here to kind of validate whether or not they think, you know, are we just crazy that we're experiencing this? And this is just all normal. 
Norma also talked about how at one time she saw a blue light shoot across her bedroom and another time Jerry watched as a fog filled the house. So to many, these experiences would obviously seem paranormal, but Norma strongly believed that they had scientific explanations and that she never believed that any of the activity that they experienced was due to the presence of ghosts or spirits in the home. They thought it all had some sort of explanation, which I'm like, okay, possibly, but uh, how often has a fog filled your house or a blue light beam shoot across your bedroom? Or how often do you just lay awake in bed and you hear voices? Eh, I'm sure it's pretty rare for most of us. That kind of activity doesn't seem like something that would have a scientific explanation behind it. I feel like the doors opening and closing on their own in this case, just because of how old the house actually is, is it could be common. I mean, I haven't lived in a house this old to see doors open and close on their own like that, but the hinges and the material on those doors, depending on how old they are, could be a factor in why they're kind of unlatching on their own. Maybe there's a blow of some wind from the window or something, but yeah, for like some of the, yeah, some of the most obvious stuff, like you said, the doors or, Mm -hmm. you know, some of the noises that they hear, like obviously could all be just normal stuff from a 1700s house. But I mean, blue light fog, stuff like that. I'm like, okay, well I'm going to have to search a little bit harder for a scientific explanation for that. Cause I mean, how often does that happen to you? You know, especially the voices thing. Like, yeah, if you, both you and your husband hear voices, then it's not just you, you know, just making your mind playing tricks on you. Clearly Mm -hmm. there's something going on. So, I mean, what, what'd you leave the TV on in the (laughs) other room? And that's the voices you hear. Maybe, I guess, but I don't know. I think there's probably something more going on there, but obviously once the conjuring came out in 2013, Norma and Jerry had constant trespassers on their property. They had ghost hunters and ghost enthusiasts, fans of the movie that just want to go to the house, see it, see where, you know, all the magic happened. And this really, really pissed them off because they were trying to live privately and they did not appreciate the constant attention they were getting as a result of the conjuring films. And it definitely didn't help when Andrea came out with her book series about the house and what she had experienced there. Cause Fans of the movie quickly realized that what really went on in the house was far worse than what was even depicted in the Conjuring movie. I mean, Andrea talked about physical torture, physical, actual assaults happening. I mean, it was really, really bad, according to the parent family. So eventually, the amount of people that were trying to go to the house, they were being harassed. There's just people there all times a day got so bad that Norm actually sued Warner Brothers for damages and for the cost of a state-of-the-art security system that they had to buy in order to keep trespassers away, which is very interesting. I don't think anything ever happened with that. I think it'd be pretty hard to sue Warner Brothers. But eventually, in June of 2019, they sold the property to Corey and Jennifer Heinzen, who are actually paranormal investigators, interesting enough. And Corey and Jennifer have a very different view of their new home. They have said that they have experienced paranormal activity from the day that they moved in, They hear faraway footsteps and knocks, doors slam for no reason, flashing lights come out of nowhere. And as paranormal investigators, obviously, if there's all this activity happening, you know, they wanted to open up to the public. They want other people to experience it. They also do believe that there are spirits inhabiting the home, and that's why they love it. They love the land. They love the creek that runs through it. And it's actually a very peaceful place. And they don't mind that the house has this dark past or the fact that it's haunted. 
I mean, as paranormal investigators, I'm sure that's like a fucking theme park for them. It's like going to Chuck E. Cheese or something. It you got, is. You got constant fun and entertainment in your house because you got all this paranormal activity you can study. However, what's interesting is that Corey does have a hard time being alone in the house, but he doesn't believe that the spirits that inhabit the home are evil. He just feels like there's a lot of spiritual activity there. There's a lot of energy happening. Their son, Kyler, has also experienced paranormal things in the house as well. He's claimed to have seen a black mass which hovered over his head and then moved around the room where it then moved away slowly and eventually dissolved. Sometimes they do hear disembodied voices echoing through the house or electronic voice phenomena that they capture. Jennifer feels that living in the house is both a little scary but also exciting and right away she looked forward to sharing the house with others. So they officially opened the house to the public in February 2020 actually and people pay to stay the night at the house. And they think of it as running a haunted house, not a bed and breakfast. Apparently, the cost to stay in the house is $125 per person on weekdays. On weekends, the cost is $750 bucks for a minimum of six guests and $125 per person after that. Damn, they're making bank off this show. Oh, they are. Such a smart move profit-wise. Yeah, honestly. Like, wow. Seriously. Honestly, I would do that. That's kind of an investment. Make like a haunted Airbnb. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. That's this smart is. as hell, yeah. honestly. We should start house hunting for some haunted <laughs> haunted places to buy right <laughs> and apparently they're booked through october they've said that the week of halloween has been spoken for clearly it's going to be uh booked out on halloween now yeah, maybe we can go stay there sometime that'd be cool that would go stay at the parent house hell yeah jennifer and Corey believe that the evil spirits that terrorize the parent family have moved on from the house though it's possible that these spirits may connect more to people than to the actual property itself and that may be why members of the parent family still sometimes feel the familiar presence of these spirits. It's also possible that these evil spirits are still within the house, but they are waiting for the right people to start haunting once again. Because, I mean, who knows? We don't know how this paranormal world works at all. We have no clue what the you know laws are or anything like that. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, it's very clear that the parent family absolutely had some type of unexplained experience while living in this farmhouse. And even to this day, they refuse to discuss many parts of their history in this home. And when they're questioned separately as adults, all of their stories still line up perfectly. It's not like they each have their own version and it's embellished here. It's not here. It's all very consistent. Andrea has a very interesting outlook on their family's experience in this house. She believes that they were kind of there for a reason and part of the reason that they experienced all this paranormal activity is for her to, you know, write books about it and share the family's story with others and give them, you know, an insight into this paranormal world. And she's one of those people that doesn't care what people think about them or their experiences. And she knows for a fact what her family experienced and that no one can take that away from them. I mean, it's their experience at the end of the day. Who are we to judge? Who are we to tell them that they didn't have this crazy paranormal experience in this old farmhouse we just can't so you got to be open-minded to it whether or not you believe in the paranormal or not i think there's a very real possibility that you know evil spirits or you know entities like this could definitely inhabit places or possess people even i mean who really knows we don't know how this shit works that's the point so it's very possible that all this was real but it's also possible that it's not it's just their experience And I admire Andrea for doing that, you know, because she wasn't the one to tell her story. Then it all be Ed and Lorraine Warren. And 
you know, she was the one who was living in the house that whole time. So yeah, I'm, I'm definitely happy that she had a positive attitude on the whole experience yeah, and yeah, I just wanted to share it with everybody because it's super interesting to keep yeah. it to yourself, like, which makes total sense. It no, makes totally. total sense. I mean, I honestly, I would be the same way if I went through an experience like this, whether it was paranormal or, you know, psychedelic, I mean, who knows? <laughs> yeah. I would want to share those experiences with other people because I think it's important for, you know, those who haven't experienced what you have to hear your experience so that Definitely. they have something to compare when they have their own experience to something else, you know, and it's not, you know, I think if we all go through life and we just have all the shit up in our head and we never share mm-hmm. our experiences with others, we're not going to grow as humans. We're not going right. to evolve. So like, that's super important that we do that. And you can't just, you know, you can't just take somebody's experience and say, Oh, that's complete bullshit. That's a lie. You're a liar because who are you to, to do that? Uh-huh. You're not, you know, you're not God. You can't, you know, you're not some otherworldly being that knows everything that's happening. Mm-hmm. So you're just, you're the same as that person and you could be, you've probably been in the same boat. So don't judge people. You know, that's, that's my message for, <laughs> for this episode. Don't, don't judge, judge people. people. <laughs> but with that being said, that is the parent family haunting for you. Obviously, there's tons more about this. There's YouTube videos of Andrea. There's books you can read on this if you're interested in learning more. We definitely recommend watching The Conjuring movie, though. They do a really good job of kind of bringing this whole story to life in a visual way. Uh, So definitely check that out. Also, if you guys want to support the show, make sure you're subscribing to us on iTunes and following us on Spotify, especially if you only watch us on YouTube. I know it's so enjoyable to watch on YouTube, but if you got a few seconds, it's free. Go subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify. We really appreciate it. But from here on out for the rest of October, our episodes are only going to get darker and scarier and more disturbing from here. So make sure you get ready for next time because we're bringing you a very, very creepy story. But until next time, lights out, everybody.